We need to be thinking not just what we can do, but what will protect us and protect our wonderful ecosystems for years to come. Hello, you're listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. I'm Ken Foster, professor in agricultural economics at Purdue University and one of your co-hosts. And with me is my student co-host, Colby Smock. Colby, how are you? Pretty good. Enjoying uh, some beautiful February days. That's crazy, man. Be careful because it's Indiana. Winter's probably not over. <laughs> I know. It might just snow. Who knows? Well, you know, I have this honey business and uh, yesterday it was a nice warm day and I went out and stood by the beehives and watched them bring in pollen. So something's oh. blooming out there already. Oh, wow. And um, that's really that's really exciting. But again, winter's not over, so who knows what's going to happen yeah. between now and when summer really arrives. But Absolutely. yeah, yeah keep, keep your winter coat out just in case. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hey, you know, I've been hearing a lot about this project that they call LEAP, L-E-A-P, that's going on here in Indiana. Uh, I hear LEAP here, I hear LEAP there. And so I actually went and looked at what does LEAP stand for? Because I didn't know. I hear about the project and, and it turns out it stands for Limitless Exploration Advanced Pace. I'm like, well, that didn't help at all. Yeah, but, uh, and that's, I didn't know that actually. So, wow. so I decided <laughs> we decided that we need to talk to somebody who actually does know something about this project. Unfortunately, here at Purdue, we have Dr. Jane Frankenberger, who is a professor in agricultural and biological engineering, and has spent her career here at Purdue working on issues related to water, water quality, and water management. And I was reading from her bio online and it says that her goal is to build capacity of agencies, producers, watershed coordinators, communities, and citizens to protect water quality while maintaining agricultural productivity. And I thought this is the perfect yeah, guest. Absolutely. And so we have Dr. Frankenberger with us today. Jane, how are you? Great. Good to be here, Ken. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Colby, you got some questions for Dr. Frankenberger? Yes, absolutely. I would like if you could give us a little bit of background about the LEAP project and what it is that is exactly motivating this project there in Lebanon. LEAP District is being developed by the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, and it's a large site that they've purchased in Boone County for putting industry there, but unfortunately they don't have enough water. And so that's really the aspect of the project that I can talk about. I can't talk about the economic aspects very well. But because there's lacking water in Boone County, they proposed bringing the water from Tippecanoe County, specifically the Wabash River alluvial aquifer, and that means the sand and gravel deposits near the river. And so that has generated some concern for citizens in Tippecanoe County about whether there's enough water for everyone. So for those of us who maybe aren't familiar with Tippecanoe County or the area in general, can you give us a, a notion of where this site, these proposed wells would be? I'm thinking relative to, say, Fort Weotnon, where the annual Feast of the Hunter's Moon Gathering takes place. Okay. That's a place where everybody might have as a reference point. Okay, if the listeners know where that is, it's further west than that. So it's several miles west of West Lafayette, where the Wabash River has a bend. And there's very rich deposits that are mostly sand and gravel, and so can produce quite a bit of water. And that's why that's the area that was looked at. But I'll just say here, most importantly, it's that it's also, the water is also fed by the Wabash River, which of course has a, a watershed area of more than 4,000 square miles. And so the water comes from from the whole river. 
So um, maybe give us a little bit of idea of what Indiana's current water regulatory statutes are that might apply to a project like this. Okay, I think it, it did surprise a lot of people to learn that we don't really have any statutes that apply directly. We have a few that were passed in the 1980s when there were water shortages due both to, from heavy pumping due to irrigation, some people may remember the Prudential Project, and then also drought in 1988. So at that time they passed what's called the Water Resources Management Act, and what it did is that any water withdrawal of more than 100,000 gallons per day is considered a significant water withdrawals, and they have certain responsibilities. First of all, to register with the state, and that's after it's already in production. They don't have to get permission, but once the, the well, usually the well or, or surface water withdrawal is there, they have to register, and then they have to report monthly water use to the state. And then there, we have another law that's the emergency regulation that if that large water withdrawal, the significant water withdrawal, causes harm to a small well, usually a home well, then they have to provide timely and reasonable compensation, which ensures that they need to make water available to the home well. So those are the main laws that apply, but neither of them, as you can see, applies to any sort of permission in advance or checking in advance whether this proposed withdrawal will cause any harm. So once they drill it, they've got carte blanche to pump it and just compensate people around who are harmed. If I'm not mistaken, though, in that area, there's a lot of agricultural irrigation as well, right? Because the soils are sandy and and prone yes, to drought. That's exactly right. And so there's a lot of concern by the irrigators because there is no law, no current regulation in place that protects them in any way because they are also large water withdrawals. And so the, the law that I just explained only applies to the small water withdrawals, essentially the home wells. And so they would not get any compensation if their well were to, to dry up under current law. I'm curious, we're talking about water being transported from one watershed to another, if I'm correct if, in that saying. Yes, and that's a very important aspect of this withdrawal because, as some mm -hmm. people say, there's lots of withdrawals in the state all over. People are mm -hmm. withdrawing water and then putting it back. But usually it goes back into the same river system, mm -hmm. which here would mean the Wabash. But in this case, they'll when they take it to the area near Lebanon, the most likely scenario is that the wastewater would be transported down to the Eagle Creek Reservoir or something else in the White River system. Okay. Now, I, I will mention that the White River, of course, flows back into the Wabash River eventually south of, of Terre Haute. Mm -hmm. So it, it will eventually be back in the, the Wabash, but all the, the flow of the Wabash from Lafayette to where the White River flows in would be reduced. So then how do they plan on transporting the water from this water basin to the there in Boone County? Well, it takes a large pipeline. As people say, this, this is done commonly around the U.S., but it's not commonly done in Indiana. Mm -hmm. So the, the technology is there to, to have this kind of pipeline. It re will require many pumping stations, you know, huge infrastructure, uh, and, and quite expensive. But there's no technological barrier to doing it. So then how do you think that this decision to move the water, or at least divert it for a while from the Wabash until it gets back later down there by White River, how do you think that will affect the Wabash River and its ecosystem? 
Yeah, that's that's the important question, because I should just mention here that although they'll be withdrawing from groundwater, it's the groundwater that's in close contact with the surface water. So it, in fact, will be mostly the Wabash River that's that's affected. So it, at, at high flows, there, we won't even notice this amount of water. It's so small compared to the to the high flows. So, and I'll just say the the overall average flow of the Wabash, to put it in perspective, is about four thousand million gallons per day. So, one hundred oh. will hardly be noticed. But that's not what matters. It's the low flows that matter. And so, the lowest flow in the last thirty years is about four hundred million gallons per day. And now I'm translating everything into million gallons per day. I do want to say to anyone listening, this is not the unit that hydrologists usually use. We talk about cubic feet per second, but you can translate back and forth. So I'm putting it in million gallons per day to put the amount of water they're thinking of for the LEAP project in perspective. But the lowest flow would be has been around 400 million gallons per day so we're talking about something like 25 percent of that low flow so that that's the question that we don't have any research that shows clearly what's the effect of reducing the low flows by 25 percent the aquatic ecologists i've talked to say well the the fish won't like it. They can move to deeper <laughs> pools, though. But the smaller pools are likely to be warmer and therefore have lower dissolved oxygen, so they're not going to thrive quite as much. And what many people are more concerned about is the mussels, because they're mostly sedentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they could be stranded or lose their food sources if mm-hmm. the low flow goes down. In terms of all these flows, is climate change going to affect this? Should we be worried more about this because climate change may change river flows and consequences? That's, that's such an important question. So as it's something people are, scientists are working very hard on predicting, and overall our water flow is going up so annually, but that's especially our higher flows. Just when we don't want more water in the winter and spring, Climate change will make us have more water, but in the times when we don't have enough water, in the summer and early fall, we're projected to have less water. So that does absolutely enter into this question. If I said it's a 25% uh, decrease in the lowest low flow, maybe it's more than that because the cli- because climate change will have already made the lower flows lower. So I think people are raising that question, and they should be raising the question of how is climate change factored in when this project is studied and possibly goes forward. I had a professor in one of my natural resource classes that came up with this idea of like big numbers and how like those can be really hard for people to comprehend because they're so outside of the scope of like 100 million gallons a day. There's no way we can consciously kind of comprehend how much water that is. So I think it's really interesting when you put it in percentage. Like it, when it comes to low flow, it'll be about 25% of that low flow that could be being taken to pump that way. I think that's an important way to help us conceptualize maybe how much water actually is being taken. And then also, like you said, when it comes to high flow, really 100 million gallons isn't that much. So that kind of leads me to the question of, is there enough water for everyone? If I know that might be a hard question to answer, but in terms of opinion. Right, that, that is the hard question to answer. There, we, we are in a, a state with very rich water resources, and overall, there's plenty of water. 
but as this project has showed, it's, it's very spotty. Some places have plenty of water and some don't. So I'll, I'll just jump from that question to say that I think this is a question that the state should be uh, doing a better job of trying to answer of where is there enough water and how can we make sure that we use the water in the in the ways and in the places that we most want to to use it. So one of the things that's come out of this is a call for more investment in water resources study in the state so we have a better idea and clearer ways to answer that very important question that you've raised. Mm -hmm. Hey, while you guys were talking about uh, how much is 100 million gallons? I just Googled how many gallons of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Mm -hmm. It's almost 500,000 gallons. So that would mean this is like around 200 Olympic-sized swimming pools a day that we're pumping or proposing to Yes, pump. and is wow. that helpful to some people? I, I, I had I yeah, had looked that yeah, up because no, it, it's, it's about 150. It. But but it, it may, right, if, if that is helpful to listeners, more power to you. Yeah. I have trouble, just as much trouble seeing that, and it, it uh, possibly yeah. seems like more than it is. Uh, one thing is last year, 2023, was a very dry year, and people were saying all summer how they would see sandbars in the Wabash. Yet, I did look it up yesterday, the lowest flow of the entire year of 2023 in September was 435 million gallons per day. Mm -hmm. So I guess that would be four times as many Olympic swimming pools. So yeah. it's, it, it is all a, a relative uh, question. So yeah, I, even when people perceive that the river is low, there is a significant amount of water yeah, there. And I, and I guess, you know, one thing that I might interject here is, you know, lessons learned from other places. You know, we hear a lot about water in Arizona, for example, and I'm sure that you know, years ago when development first started in those various places in Arizona, everybody said, yeah, there's plenty of water for this. But this is just the beginning, this 100 million gallons a day. Um, one expects that if this project's successful, that that's only going to grow. I think that's what people are, are concerned about, looking to the future and the the asking those important questions about the future, about what their grandchildren can expect. And certainly climate change makes those questions even more important. You know, we hear a lot about, and we've talked a lot about the impacts of kind of the residents here in Tippecanoe County and those of us who enjoy the Wabash for canoeing or boating or fishing and those who depend on the water in the area for their lives and livelihoods. But what about other communities, say downstream, are there any potential impacts on them? Yes, one potential issue is that wastewater permits are based on flow in the river. They calculate a low flow index called the 7Q10, the lowest seven-day flow expected in, in 10 years, and the amount of wastewater that they're allowed to discharge is based on that. So if that goes down, which it, it likely would, that would affect downstream communities. People ask about other impacts. There's no downstream community from Lafayette that uses the Wabash directly for drinking water, so we don't have that. There are a few other issues that people bring up. For example, there's a lot of wetlands and wetland easements along the riverbank, and those could be affected. 
And these are the kind of larger issues that we hope that a study would include. I think that's one of the concerns of, of citizens who are against this development that a very narrow range of questions has been asked so far. We hope that with the new study that will that is just going to get underway soon, the, all these questions can be asked and not just whether it's possible to get this amount of water from, the, from that location. Yeah, so at this point, you know, we have worried farmers, we have worried citizens, but we just maybe don't have enough information to know whether they should really be concerned or not? I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. And so there are studies that can be done ahead of time. And then one idea I would love to see is a commitment to monitoring if this project does go through so that there's transparent open data to everyone that they could see what the impacts are. It would not be that difficult to install monitoring wells that could have the water level displayed on a website that people could look at, you know, anywhere in the state, anywhere in the world, they could see what the impact is. So I hope that we also consider uh, monitoring after a project like this is put in place to see what we can learn from it and give people confidence about whether in fact there was an issue or not. It sounds like we're in unprecedented territory here, and the state of Indiana maybe has an interesting moment in time where they can really either maybe move forward in terms of bettering some of the policy initiatives and data collection, like what you mentioned, or maybe not. Like, you know, that's the thing of transition periods. How's it going to shake out? I'm just curious to see what options do you think that the state does have for policy initiatives moving forward, and then what can be improved? First of all, that's really well said, that this is an opportunity to do something more than we've done in the past. We don't want to just say we don't do that here. So thank you for stating it so well. Obviously, more monitoring, as we've already talked about. And then the the next, the other step is usually to require some kind of permit. And that's the challenge you know, in the details, as always. What would you what would you require in order to give a permit? So some of us have been reading up from other states. I think there's an opportunity to learn from, from them of, of what's worked well. We, we talked for people in Ohio, for example, which put in a, a stricter permit um, system just a few years ago when they saw a need for, for that. So how well is that working? We can look at the states around us. The part of Indiana that's in the Great Lakes Basin, just the very northern part, already has different regulations because it's because of the Great Lakes Compact, all the states have a different system. So they already require permits. So what can we learn from what has gone on there? As we, I talked about with, with uh, Arizona or the, the Colorado River, we certainly want to think ahead and not do something that will have a permanent permit because the, the river is changing. We know the climate is changing. So I think they've run into trouble there because they allocated all the water that was in the river at a particularly wet time. So now they've got a problem that people can't get at that. Mm -hmm. So a, a good permit system, we've learned from other states, should probably have a limited time on it, 10 or 20 years, something like that, enough so that people can invest, mm -hmm. but not so that so much that if the hydrologic conditions change in the future, which they might, that we are back to the same problems again. Wonderful. You mentioned the Great Lakes area, and, and maybe it's important for some of our listeners who live in that area those particular regulations, as I understand it, uh, prohibit any removal of water from the Great Lakes watershed to another watershed. Is that correct? 
Yes, that is, and that's part of the the Great Lakes Compact that was passed in all the Great Lakes states and then ratified by by Congress, and. They at, at the time, I, I learned a lot from the people who were promoting it because I said, well, do we, we don't want to be selfish, and that's the question, but yet it is our responsibility to be good stewards of the Great Lakes. Who is going to protect it if the people who live near it won't protect it? So I think that's the sense of the people in Tippecanoe County that are saying we need to be good stewards and, and protect the water. Wonderful. Any closing comments, anything we didn't talk about that you think we really should talk about here? No, I think they're excellent questions. There's there's much that we don't know, but the the concern by the citizens has really made people think around the state that we need to be thinking not just what we can do, but what we what will protect us and protect our wonderful ecosystems for years to come. Yeah, it's another one of these tough policy challenges where you're trying to trade off costs and benefits across space and time and people and different needs. And Jane, we're just really fortunate here at Purdue and in the state of Indiana to have somebody like yourself who is so well-versed in these issues and able to communicate them so well. We really thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. You've been listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. You can visit the department at www.purdue.com agecon.purdue.edu. You can follow us on Facebook and like us on X, formerly Twitter. Have a great day.